0: Hey, before we dive into this interview, I want to remind you that the submission deadline for issue three of the audio magazine has been extended to December 31st. Didn't get nearly enough submissions, and by not nearly enough, I mean I got one. Uh, This call for submissions was out for something like six months, and I got one, so... Anyway, theme is heroes. Maybe it's just a crappy theme. I don't know. Essays must be no more than 2,000 words. Bear in mind, this is an audio essay, so pay attention to how the words roll out of your mouth. Email submission with heroes in the subject line to creative Podcast at com. And I pay writers, too. I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. Dig it.
1: Was, oh, there's my dog pitter pattering across the floor
0: um but uh well this is the creative Nonfiction podcast a show where i speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories i'm brendan o'Mara how's it going jen winston is my guest today she's the author of greedy notes from a bisexual who wants too much it's published by atria And here's a little ditty from the back of the book. Jen Winston, she, they, is a writer and creative director living in Brooklyn. Her work bridges the intersection of sex and politics and has been featured by CNN, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, and more. Follow Jen on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Please, she's begging you, at generous. That is generous with a J. Get it? Who doesn't love wordplay? Support for the Creative Nonfiction Podcast is brought to you by West Virginia Wesleyan College's Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing. Now in its 10th year, this affordable program boasts a low student-to-faculty ratio and a strong sense of community. Recent faculty from the CNF division include Randall Billings-Noble, Jeremy Jones, and Sarah Einstein. There's also fiction and poetry tracks with recent faculty there. Being Ashley Bryant Phillips and Jacinda Townsend, as well as Diane Gilliam and Savannah Sipple. No matter your discipline, if you're looking to up your craft or learn a new one, consider West Virginia Wesleyan, right in the heart of Appalachia. Visit the. You think I? How many times have I read this? Twenty times. You think I'd be good at it by now? Visit mfa.wvwc.edu for more information and dates of enrollment. Okay. Uh, Jen and I talk about some of the hidden costs that go into writing a book. Some of the costs that she had to shoulder to make sure the thing was what she really wanted. And isn't that what we all want? Even if you have a book deal from a prominent publisher like she does, she had to shoulder a a lot of things that you might not think a writer might have to shoulder. Uh, memoir as a radical medium, using the pronoun you as an immersive experience, using different narrative techniques and forms, and getting around the grammar of the grammar confusion of uh, they them pronouns, and uh, how she wrote this book with a full time job. Great stuff! I think you're really gonna love it. Oh, and one more thing: on Saturday, November thirteenth, seven p.m. Eastern. I'll be interviewing debut author Ricky Tucker about his new book and the category is as part of a CNF Pod live event, first ever live event virtual but live nevertheless. It's for a virtual conference called the Nonfiction Sessions. It's put on by my MFA alma mater, Goucher College. Tickets are 20 bucks and there's going to be a few great Items on the docket. There's a conversation taking place with Brian Broom, and you can check him out in the CNF Pod archive. We spoke to him this year about his book Punch... Uh, what is it? Punch Me Up to the Gods. That's right. I it's my favorite memoir of the year. If you want to be in the audience for this CNF Pod live event with me and Ricky Tucker, the Eventbrite link will be in the show notes, and it'll be uh, across... By various social media accounts, my favorite. Notably, at Creative Nonfiction Podcast on Instagram and at CNF Pod on Twitter. Feel good? Feel good about where this is heading? Okay. Here's my conversation with Jen Winston. She, they. That I read that you know you essentially wrote this book in three months so I wanted Mm -hmm. maybe you can take us to the to that fury of writing to generate something like this at least in rough draft form in such a fast amount of time
1: yeah I mean I would not wish that timeline on my worst enemy (laughs) it wasn't (laughs) really hard um but what happened is I got the book deal. I sold my book off of proposal in October of 2020, October 15th. It was the day after my birthday. Great birthday present. Yeah, um, and we were we were discussing timeline and we were trying to we, – we decided the book should probably come out around Buy visibility Day, which is in September. And uh, we discussed whether it should come out in 2021, September 2021, or – September 2022 like those seemed to be the only options because we weren't sure that people would really care about like there wouldn't be a media moment around bisexuality as much um for the rest of the year which is like unfortunately like a, a sad truth that we were uh kind of discussing and then we were like these this issue has so much momentum behind it uh and my editor was like do you think you could do it in Like, do you think you could get it done by September? And I didn't realize, like, that that would mean I only had three months to do a first draft. Like, I didn't realize the whole work back schedule of the production timeline, and I agreed to it. And that was a very rookie debut writer mistake. Um, But I I was really just, what it meant is that I was, like, a nightmare throughout the process to my publisher because, like, they sent back the copy-edited manuscript and that was the first time I'd really gotten like a, a nice break from like my, uh, I don't know, whatever you would call the second draft. I'm sure that was like my like 40th draft really. But when they sent back the copy edit manuscript, I started reading it and I was like, oh my God, this is terrible. And so I just basically rewrote the whole thing. Like I think I looked at track changes during that time and and I made 18,000 changes after it had been copy edited. So like wow. that's not recommended to do to your publisher, but I'm so grateful that they they were agreed that the changes were made it better and made it stronger and even after first pass like after the advanced reader copy I like made so many changes still. So I was really like like I sent a bunch of changes the day it went to the printer. Like I was that person. Um, but I'm somehow really happy with the final product. I, I did not think I would get there for a very long time, but I'm I'm really proud of it.
0: Now, how did you not get too demoralized when you see all those track changes, all the red ink, essentially that is on your manuscript? Uh, when you see that, you know what's going through your mind, and how do you work in the face of that?
1: I mean, well it was like literally difficult because I had so many track changes (laughs) that it kept crashing. So that was terrible. But, um, I, I actually ended up turning it off, like turning off. So you could see the, couldn't see the red ink. Um, and I think if I had had a longer timeline, I would have done it. Like I would have printed it out and made my edits that way because it's so much different to engage with your text that way. Um, but I did, I did print it out like a few times and it was like $200 each time because I had to go to Kinko's. So, I mean, that's like a cost. They don't, there are so many costs they don't tell you about. You know, I, I definitely like spent a bunch of money on this, on making this book what I wanted it to be. But I think at the end of the day, it just comes down to making sure you're telling your story the way you want to. And so I kind of found that some of that red ink empowering. It's like, Oh good. I, I righted this wrong and I would, I would rather have done that than not.
0: Talk a little bit about those costs, given that I think a lot of people, especially uh, when we see, you know, a pretty major publisher in Atria, they, they, the, the, You would think that at least the the layman will probably be like, oh, they've got everything covered. You know, it's it's all it's all bankrolled by the publisher. But, you know, you're paying some things out of pocket, whether that's from advance or not, but it's still coming out of your bank account. So talk a little bit about those costs.
1: Yeah. I mean, the most major ones were I hired my own publicist because I talked to several authors who had done that in the past and, um, or who had not done that. And they all said they wished they had, and I didn't want to have any regrets. And so, I mean, I have a day job that's not writing. Like I work in marketing by day and I had the day job during the three months that I wrote this book, by the way. Uh, it was really hard. Um, yeah. but, um, my publicist is like the reason I'm on this podcast. Like my publicist has done a lot. Um, and so I'm really glad I made that decision because even though it, it was the largest line item I've ever paid for anything, I was like, this book is more, more important to me than pretty much anything I've ever done. So I want to make sure I'm investing in myself. Um, and I, I'm glad I did that even though it was, really difficult to like pull the trigger on that. Um And then the other cost that was quite expensive that I thought that I would have, I thought that we would have been able to handle with the publisher is that I got my own cover designer. Um And that was a choice that I made, honestly, like not knowing, not even knowing that my publisher would like allow me to do that. But after I saw the first round of covers, I, Um, just wanted to make sure that like, for for me, the cover is so important, especially for a book that talks about bisexuality, which, uh, there aren't a lot of comps that talk about it openly that aren't like, uh, textbooks. Um, when, when there is bi representation in books, uh, it's often not called out like directly and it's not like held up as a bisexual piece of writing. Um, So I think one of the only places that actually like honors that overtly is like the Lambda Literary Awards. They have like a bisexual fiction and nonfiction category. But even a lot of LGBTQ plus organizations don't like uh, highlight bisexual writing specifically. Um, And so when I was looking for comps, there wasn't really anything and like, I didn't know what it should look like. And I, I, because I've worked in marketing as a creative, so I work with designers all the time, I was like, this is a really complex design challenge to speak about bisexuality, but not do it overtly because the title is so like on the nose. And I ended up like, I went down like an Instagram spiral of book covers and uh, started favoriting the ones I liked. And I realized that pretty much all of them were designed by Rodrigo Corral, who's like an incredibly talented cover designer. And I was like, maybe if I DM him, he'll respond to me and like give me his rates. And he did. And we had just a great, we had such a great time talking through the subject matter. Uh, And he asked to read like what I had of the manuscript thus far, which was a great, I would say a green flag for me. I was like, Oh, that's awesome that like he wants to know the book that he's designing for. I mean, it makes, it seems quite obvious, but like the, the Adria designers had only had the proposal. So uh, they hadn't seen the manuscript yet. I just, I really loved his interpretation of it. He almost made, he almost made the cover based around this shirt I was wearing during our Zoom call, because he, he said it was very like, uh, re- like it it just screamed my energy for him. And so he said he he wanted to make it match my energy, which I took to be like an incredible compliment. So, yeah.
0: And I, I love that you, you speak openly about having a, a full time day job as you wrote this book and still have that. And a, a lot of people who listen to this show and there are a lot of writers who are fairly visible out there who it would appear that their books or essays are what's putting food on the table. But the truth is, many people are subsidizing their writing habit, even if they're very good at it, with with a day job. And so it's a matter of finding the time in the cracks of your schedule. Uh, so maybe you can uh, speak to that and how you were able to do it, even if it was an incredibly frenetic experience for you on this first book.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, part of the reason... When I heard the three-month timeline, I was like, "Okay, I can make that work." Because <laughs> realistically, if I had had a year and three months, I probably would have put a lot of it off because yeah. that's who I am. <laughs> and a friend of mine was like, "If you don't need a ridiculous deadline to get something done, then maybe you're not a writer." <laughs> uh, which I I loved that vote of encouragement. Um, but I mean, that's obviously if you can get things done on. Like without deadlines, you're a great writer. <laughs> I, I think mm-hmm. I watched I watched some uh, session, like some conversation with Dan Brown, and Dan Brown was saying that the difference between like good writers and like not good writers is just writing, and I found that really motivating to be like, you have to get it done, or else what are you doing? You're talking about it, and yeah. um, so it really did like. I have never written as much, like, as quickly in my life. Um, and I'm the best part about writing a book is how much better of a writer you get at the end because you've put in, like, wh- however many hours. So, like, every draft I read, I was like, oh, like, I know this now. I know this now. Like, in the beginning, I worked with an early editor who uh, – was was talking with me about building strong characters and like and also uh like she noticed that a lot of my writing was in passive voice and I was which a lot of it still is because like that's just a habit I have a really hard time breaking um but yeah uh i mean don't we all but um oh. i it made so much of my writing stronger like so much less of it is in passive voice because of something i learned like early in the, the writing process so of this book. It wasn't like something like that actually weirdly wasn't a critique I'd gotten in a lot of writing workshops or writing classes, but it was something I learned like the first month of writing my book. And so I was like, oh, shit. So I did like a find and replace for the word is and like I did, a you know, had to end up rewriting a bunch of stuff because of that. And I took out a bunch of adverbs, uh, like all, all of that stuff. I'm definitely not even answering your original question, but um, but here we are.
0: Well, there, yeah, there's that. That's that is all part of it. Which is really what's really great, or what the trap can be, and what actually was beneficial about you having such a tight deadline is because you go through it and you do get better, and you go back and reread, and you're like, okay, I got a little bit better, so let me refine a little more, and by the time you get to the end of that you get a little bit better and along the way you might be reading something else and you're like, Oh, I kind of want to try that on for size. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. all of a sudden you get into this spiral of revision where you just keep going and going and going. Whereas like with that hard deadline that you had is just like, okay, at some point I just got to submit this and be done with it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That, I mean, it was helpful, uh, to have a pencils down moment. Um, I also, something that I did, um, that I don't even know how I made time for this, but I took an, like I took a workshop with the shipment company um, about like experimental uh, structure. And nice. I loved the workshop. Like it gave me so many ideas. And so my book uses a lot of different formats in across the essays. Um, and that's one of the reasons because um, that class really inspired me.
0: Yeah. in, in books I like to say are are of course made of books and they all have kind of a Mm -hmm. family tree behind it. So what would you identify as Greedy's ancestral lineage?
1: Oh my God. That's such a cool way of thinking of it. I love it. I would say how to write an autobiographical novel by Alexander Chi was like uh, the book that I like cradled in my hands. Like I, I think I literally slept with it beside me. Most of the writing process just because I was so, like even if it's just a beautiful physical object as well. So like it, it's like 270 pages or something. So I was like, that's my goal page count. Uh, like I want the French flaps, which I wasn't able to get as a debut author, but next time. Um, but I, I uh, just, I don't know. I just held it with me a lot because I, I think it was, it was a little like a book parent. Um, and then in the dream house by Carmen Maria Machado, really inspired me, uh, in terms of like how to queer the genre of memoir. Um, just because it's the most experimental memoir that I've read and and really resonated with written in a bunch of like short vignettes as like metaphors that over overall and together tell this beautiful story about queer relationships and, um, emotional abuse within those queer relationships. And then I'm looking up at my bookshelf trying to see – I have like a bisexual shelf right above me. Oh, of course. The book that like really meant – has meant so much to me throughout this process and in my life is uh, – it's called By Notes for a Bisexual Revolution by Shiri Eisner. And it's really just a queer theory text. Um, but reading it was the first time I really felt proud to be bisexual. And um, that was – Oh, there's my dog pitter-pattering nice. across the floor. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, reading, reading Shiri's book is the first time I felt proud to be bisexual. And that was such a, an amazing experience for me to actually feel proud of this identity that is so often seen as something you can't celebrate for one reason or another. And um, I just really hope that my book gives other bi people any semblance of that feeling, because it was a really magical thing for me. So that that those are probably the the that's the village that raised greedy.
0: In scrolling your your Twitter uh, uh, timeline, it it seems very apparent that the the book is really hitting the bullseye for a lot of people, and speaking for a lot of people who have the same insecurities and feelings that you so wonderfully illustrate in the book and articulate for them so what does that meant for you that this is actually hitting that that nexus of your experience and theirs
1: I mean it's so validating when someone tells me that it resonated with them because it tells me that my experiences were worth telling um, or that that these stories were worth telling which is something that a lot of bi people deal with is uh, because of this idea that, like, there there's this pervasive idea that everyone is bisexual. Really, what when we say that, which a lot of people have said that to me throughout the uh, process of writing this book, what we're saying is that no one is bisexual and that bisexual stories aren't worth talking about and bisexual experience doesn't matter. And so I think that's a big source of my imposter syndrome around, like, is – am I queer enough? Does this book need to exist? Um, and so whenever anyone like resonates with the book, it just like makes me feel like I did the right thing by telling the story. And so that really, it really means so much. But actually, the uh, I've gotten a lot of messages of people who are from people who it's resonated with. And a friend of mine asked if that meant that if or if that made me think that maybe everyone was bisexual. And I said, actually, no, it's making me think it's a very unique experience because it's resonating so specifically with people. And like, I think non-bisexual people enjoy the book, uh, but it's not like saying things that they didn't know they could say out loud kind of thing. And another part of that is the fact that it's so rarely overtly discussed, like with the bisexual title. And if it is, it's like, Tucked aside as like a chapter or something. But Shiri's work really helped me realize that I could use bisexuality as a lens to look at all these issues I wanted to look at. And because I've had a bunch of these essays, like starts to them or earlier drafts of them for quite a while. And I haven't really known how they fit together aside from like a dating memoir or like a political memoir. But I was never really able to fully like marry the two, um, uh, pun intended, I guess. Um, <laughs> but, but with bisexuality, I like thinking of it as a lens for really just, uh, betraying binaries and like social norms as they have been set for us. Um, it's, it's really been, it, it really worked out. Like I, uh, somebody asked me if, I was worried that I wouldn't be able to write a whole book about it. And I was like, yeah, I was worried. And then it ended up being so fruitful Um, because really as an idea, it's about questioning everything and checking in with yourself and making sure that you're making the right decisions for yourself, which is uh, it took me a lot of personal growth to get to that point.
0: Now, as a matter of craft and structure, you know, you could have made a decision to, do a more of a classic memoir that is you know kind of reads like a novel it's kind of beginning to end and here's the personal growth or a more sort of episodic more linked essay collection which of course you went with the latter so what was that decision like and how did that reinforce the story you wanted to tell
1: i mean i love the personal essay as form um so i was that was definitely what I wanted to do. Um, but I've learned that if you market something as an essay collection, or you tell people it's an essay collection that they skip around, which is not something that I do when I'm reading essay collections, but yeah. my book is really meant to be read in a linear format. Like I reference a character in one chapter and then I'll reference that character again later, like with less context. Um, so if you read it, if you skip around and and read parts of it out of order, you're gonna miss things like that, and you're gonna miss like character development. That's something I would have done differently because I guess it is a memoir. A memoir in essays is is probably the right term. Um, but I I really love a standalone personal essay, um, and so my hope was to have a few of those in there. And I also don't love when memoirs like focus so much on childhood. Uh, Most of the time, there are obviously exceptions. But my, I mean, my childhood, I have like a few, I had a few formative stories I wanted to tell that related to my queerness and gender roles. So I, I wanted to have those, but I didn't want them to be the first chapter of the book. Like I felt like there were so many things about, bisexuality that was it was necessary to like debunk first in fact the thing i changed at that at the copy editing phase was there was a 22 page faq about bisexuality that had all the like it had answers to all these different questions of like including the question of isn't everyone bisexual like it had that answer mm-hmm. um but it was so it was reading as like a textbook and not as uh, a like memoir and essays. So, um, I, I, that was my biggest change I did at that phase was I like worked that information in throughout. And I think that was actually probably the biggest challenge was trying to structure it with all of the social justice related information that I wanted, but also tell a good story. I, I, my early editor kept saying, um, it's like, you want to give the, the broccoli with the cookies type of thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. In a way, I was just thinking the metaphor of like having to mix the wet and dry ingredients together. It's like, oh, uh-huh. okay, and this is yes. how we're going to make a good a good batter.
1: <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> yes. Spoken like a pet owner. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> One of my favorite favorite essays in the collection was "The Girl Crush: Clinical Observations," and I, I loved. I loved it. It was, to me, it was just kind of heartbreaking and confusing. And I, I just loved the the headspace of it. I, I love middle school as a place mm-hmm. to write from. And I, I just love that essay so much. And I was wondering maybe if you could uh, just talk about, you know, the, the form of that essay too, which has a clinical detachment
1: uh, mm-hmm.
0: embedded into it. So maybe you can speak to how you approach that as a means to tell that particular vignette.
1: I'm really glad you asked about that one because that's another thing I changed at the copy editing phase, it was not in that form whatsoever when it was copy edited. (laughs) And so I sent it back and my editor was like, I'm sorry, what's this? Like you made this like a medical (laughs) motif. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I think it's better. Um, and really I did that because the original form was, I forget what it was even called. Um, but, but it had basically like paragraphs, uh, that were numbered. I think it was sort of like, ingredients or there was something there, but it wasn't, the concept wasn't like fully developed. Um And so then when I was looking at the overarching text, after I got rid of the FAQ and stuff, I, it, this, the Girl Crush essay was originally written in the second person in the U format, which is a format that I love because it's so immersive. Um, especially when combined with present tense, I feel like there's nothing that gets me to turn a page faster. And that's another thing I, that's underscored by Carmen Maria Machado's, in the dream house. But I realized that the first chapter, which is basically about a bad interaction with a man, or like a, a lackluster interaction, um, that makes me question my queerness. And then um the essay where I meet my my now partner, uh Brinley, both of those essays were in the second person. And I wanted the parallel between those two to be more apparent which meant I needed to get rid of the second person in this girl crush essay. And I was thinking about that experimental form workshop that I had been to. uh, And I, I realized the core of the essay is, is was about diagnosing whether something is a a girl crush or a like romantic crush. Um, And that's something that's really hard for all queer people to do, but especially when you're bisexual, you don't have like, lack of attraction to another gender or the, or the gender that would make you straight, I guess, you don't have that lack of attraction to just inform that, yes, this is in fact romantic on, on this side of things. And so I, I really didn't know, like, even in hindsight, I'm not really sure. And I mean, I, I kind of have a, a gut instinct. <laughs> but um now I do. But it it took me a really long time to kind of look back on that and be like, oh, I'm pretty sure that like I was in love with her. <laughs> um mm-hmm. but I didn't because I didn't really register it as that at the time. And so I I think it, it really came from taking that idea of like diagnosis literally because so much of like coming out is about diagnosing yourself and Uh, naming your identity and so much of this book is is about like that practice of engaging with language and language as as a gatekeeper at times
0: it have you read or not uh read or seen the cartoon by emma hunsinger how to draw a horse
1: oh it sounds so familiar
0: yeah it it was a new yorker cartoon from a year or two ago and it's a oh yes yeah Right. And it, I got such uh, how to draw a horse vibes from girl, the Girl Crush essay. Of just oh, my this, God.
1: Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. It, was, it,
0: just, it just had that really sort of long, that middle school longing of just the, the confusion that's going on. You're trying to get your footing. You don't know how to say what it is you're feeling or describe how you're feeling. And it just it was just a swirl of hormones and emotion that I just found mm-hmm. really relatable.
1: I'm, I'm grateful for you saying that because also my editor didn't love the switch from the U tense, um, to this sort of more detached format. So I'm glad that all of that emotional challenge, I guess, came through.
0: Yeah. And when you brought up the, the second person as a narrative device, uh, I have that written down too, with, with the Brindley James Ford, uh, Essay, which who, who is of course your your partner, and and you've already alluded to it a little bit, um, but maybe you can speak to it a bit more on a granular granular level about why you and the second person is such a a great device to deploy for a particular essay, depending on whatever your goal is for that piece.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just really, I I really just love to read the second person. I, it feels so uh, immersive to me, it just like puts you in the the POV scene. In fact, the first essay I had started it, it was like when the TikTok trend of like, POV, you're doing this. Like, you know, that meme, like POV, you're on a podcast about creative nonfiction. And then you have an image that, that indicates it. I had originally started the first essay with the words POV. Um, and then I was like, wait, that's not necessary at all. And yeah. So I I just really love that format and it, it felt very like topical at the time. Um, But with the Brindley James Ford essay, I wanted to make it in that format specifically because I think a lot of people don't know what it's like to love and fall in love with a trans non-binary person. Like I think I feel very privileged that I have had that experience. Um, because I mean, this relationship has been so rewarding for me in so many ways um, beyond just gender. Um, but also I wanted to use the book itself to educate around like using they, them pronouns. And I just, I wanted to put the reader in the position of using those falling in love with someone who uses those pronouns. Um, as, almost like just a subconscious thing, just so that it's like you, this could happen to you, you know? Um, and this is what it feels like. And uh, like, it w- it was very important to me to be able to use they, them pronouns in a singular sense uh, throughout the book in some capacity. And I mean, that was the place to do it was in this chapter about my partner who exclusively uses those pronouns. And my partner like looked at the chapter and like was very involved in in that chapter. They signed a legal release. Um, oh wow! But yeah, <laughs> I mean, um, all the people whose names I didn't change had to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it. Yeah, pretty much anyone who's talked about like favorably, I didn't change their name. Um, <laughs> but yeah,
0: there's a moment in that essay too where. Uh, You and Brindley are at the pharmacist and they're expected to give their name, like birth name. And that was such a such a really touching and gutting moment in in that essay that I think is really illustrative of of a titanic struggle that must must happen on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, I'm glad that came through because it was really awful and it does happen so much I mean literally like just this morning they were dealing with something uh, related to it and yeah, I actually like even when logging onto this podcast program, I tried to type my pronouns and it told me I couldn't use special characters so um I mean it's like it's interesting how often it that happens like I couldn't do a slash um, or parentheses so I was like I'll just tell you. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I use she, her, they, them
1: pronouns. I don't think I did say it, but yeah, I think you, you know, but
0: I, yeah, I, I know just from the, from the, from the book and it's, uh, uh, even on the the back jacket Mm -hmm. of the book and it's definitely, it's, it's tricky from a grammar perspective and I'm glad you, you talk about it so well and you even have people quoted talking about it. It's just like, well, as long as you're trying, like just try and, and the more and more we try and get used to that repetition, the, the grammar of it will slowly subside. And maybe that's only an issue for people who are like kind of grammar people who are are writing it.
1: I identify as a grammar person for sure. And so it was difficult for me at first, but I think like, uh, I, I was kind of trying to fit the arc of the book so that, uh, it, it was true to my personal story, which is basically that in, Learning and understanding my bisexuality, it helped me see beyond these like existing uh, the the boxes that are like set out for us to, to choose from. Um, and then it made it made it so much easier for me to have that conversation with myself about gender. Like now, I identify as non-binary, um, and which. I, I try not to like take up too much space with that identity because I have a lot of privilege and I use she her pronouns. Um like you know, that's fine for me, just as they them pronouns are also fine for me. Um, mm-hmm. but I wanted I wanted to make sure that that I had a piece of writing that just treated they them pronouns as singular, like without causing a ruckus of it. I mean, of course it was like about that a bit. Um, but I wanted to just, just do that because I think like, it's so important that there are young adult books and, uh, other books that use they, them pronouns, um, in just treat them as you would like him or her pronouns. It's, it's so critical.
0: Yeah. There's a moment in the book also, which I really loved and related to in the sense that, uh, when a relationship turns from, you know, you've got your friend and then they're with a relationship and then all of a sudden it becomes a we thing. And mm-hmm. in that that in essence is like a dagger in that friendship. And yeah. I I feel that especially because my, my wife and I, you know, we don't have kids and don't want kids. And so when we've had friends that choose to have children it that become with every successive child oh, yeah. it becomes a uh, further and further distance the relationship and it's just like uh, it really sucks yeah. so like when you when you wrote about that it, it really it really spoke to me because that in a way when those things start to happen it becomes just another signifier that this friendship will no longer be what it used to be
1: yeah I I wanted to encapsulate like I, I was reading a book at the time, which is another book that I recommend called Life Isn't Binary. Um, it's by Meg John Barker and Alex Ian Um, And it's, it's kind of a more like social sciences book. Uh, but they talk about, first it talks about how bisexuality isn't binary and sexuality itself isn't binary. And there are a lot of non-binary sexualities um but then it also talks about other things that aren't binary which another mm-hmm. one they they mention is our idea of love and they talk about how like the ancient greeks had all these different types of love that they had names for like i'm i'm not going to i don't remember them so it was like eros and mm-hmm. and amos and you know all these different words um that we see showing up um and Some of them referred to more platonic love, which also obviously that's another. Thing that came from that time period, but some of them referred to more romantic love or, or how we now see it. And so I wanted to kind of also go in on the idea that love itself is not binary and highlight this really like powerful friendship that I have had, uh, which for queer people often aligns with the idea of chosen family. And so that was another thread I wanted to kind of weave through because for so long, because I was I, uncertain to claim my own queerness. I was uncertain to claim the title of chosen family for my friends. And also I have a, a very strong, like uh, biological family. Like we have a very good relationship, which is why they're barely in the book. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, it, it just didn't occur to me that I had a chosen family as well. Um, but in so many ways I did and do, and it does, I mean, I wanted, I wanted to kind of capture that, That shift because I do think it's super relatable. Um, But also, I was a little shocked at how much of my emotional unavailability was likely due to these very strong relationships I had as friendships. Um, And so I wanted to kind of capture that arc as well.
0: Yeah. And you're very candid about acknowledging your privilege throughout the book. And even in this conversation, you've brought it up a, a few times. And how did you get to a point in writing this book where you felt like you uh, that you had permission to write it, if if that makes any sense?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it definitely makes sense. I had written five proposals for different books before this, and I'm glad I didn't publish any of those because they weren't the truest to my experience and most of them ended with bisexuality like most of them were like guess what I guess I'm bi so I don't have to deal with this like all this nonsense anymore um and or some of them were like more political and about like unlearning almost in like a textbook style um but then I kind of realized that that wasn't my story to tell and so I think part of what bisexuality did here was it helped me reclaim my own story and it's Mm. I, I did a ton of research because I wanted to make sure I like spoke to intersectional experiences of bisexuality like across race and disability and uh, and gender even because there are so few like non-binary, bi- non-binary bisexual people are often overlooked uh, within the queer community, which is already overlooking, Bisexual people in general. So ultimately what I found is that there's not very much data about like bisexual, black bisexuals, Asian bisexuals, indigenous bisexuals. Um, There's not a lot of data about like any type of intersectional subgroup because there's already a lack of data and information about bisexual people as a larger community. And so I wanted to highlight my privilege just to like make sure that it was clear that I was talking from a very privileged perspective because there are so many or because there are so few accounts of bisexuality like f- across these different intersections of identity. So in, in the beginning, I I also had a prologue that I ended up throwing out that was like it was basically like a 10 pages on like my whiteness. Um, and Mm -hmm. my early editor was like, this is really like apologizing for you writing the book at all. Not that it's not important to say, um, but it also was, is not really what the book itself is about. And so I was like, okay, this makes sense. Um, and I tried to kind of integrate that information throughout. Um, but like it, it, even with like, I have a chapter about smoking weed, um, as a child, the first time I smoked weed, because it felt like a a formative gender experience for me. Um, and I like realized upon like my third read, I was like, oh my God, I can't just write this chapter and not like acknowledge that weed is like a, a very racialized topic. Like, oh my God. So I like ended up adding in some reflection about like how I absolutely did not realize that as a middle schooler. But, um, but I think it's just I, – I was trying to make sure that my book, like, knew its role in the conversation because the worst thing for me would have been, like, if this book was held up somehow as a uh, – like, th- the only bisexual – like, oh, we have this book, this bisexual book. We don't need more um, because I think – I hope that it paves the way for more bisexual stories um, and based on the messages I've been getting from people who it resonates with, I think that it might. So that's exciting.
0: Oh, that's great that that uh, there's this there's this idea that I think as as writers in general, and certainly you writing on on this topic, given that there isn't a whole lot of literature on the topic itself, it's that it's incumbent upon us to open open doors for those who are coming behind us and maybe even take the door off the hinges. So it's that much easier for people to kind of pass through. And it sounds mm-hmm. like what you're doing with this book is, Oh, you're giving you're you're lighting the path. So other people can have their permission to follow, to follow you and then tell their stories and tell, and, and, and show their truth.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really hope that that's true um, because I'm really interested in reading other bisexual experiences. Like there's no yeah. way that that mine is the only one, you know. Um and so yeah, I I really hope that that that's what happens. Um and for me it's so important that it, I've said this a few times, but it's so important that bisexuality is named uh in those stories. Uh, because yeah. Other like for me I really needed that word to have something to like cling to that I was like this is who I am. Um, And there's so much stigma around that word and misconception. uh, And so I I really wanted to like destigmatize that word and share everything I'd learned about it so that more stories that use that word could be told.
0: And you write early in the book, too, that when you're kind of uh, looking in the mirror sort of as as an anti-pep talk, it's uh, (laughs) you're like, and how can you even dream of talking to your parents when you can barely talk to your friends? They know you haven't had many any queer experiences, which must mean that they think uh, they think you're a fraud. On second thought, why are you even considering this? You're obviously straight. Mm-hmm. So yeah, how did you get past this kind of uh, anxiety spiral a- as you write in the in that section?
1: Uh, I, I it took me so long to get get over that, and I think really it was when I formally came out that I was like. Like it w- I did it as a way to hold myself accountable, like I posted an Instagram about it and that meant I told my parents and I like you know I came out and my coworkers then knew um and with that i I feel like I was really able to step into bisexuality as an identity rather than like a behavior even in that excerpt that you just read it I really was concerned that because I hadn't had like this "Quote unquote proof of my bisexuality. Like I hadn't had the queer experiences, uh, I, that I was not actually bisexual. And so then you're in this like catch 22 of like, how do you get those experiences if you're not actually queer? Um, and, or if you, if you don't think that you're queer, how do you get queer sex experiences? And so, yeah, that, that was, uh, very much a long journey. Um, I, I was really still thinking about bisexuality as a behavior and I thought that meant I had to behave it in order to be it. And that's part of the reason it's so important for representation of bisexuality to use the word because often in like TV and and movies we'll see bisexual characters but we'll only know that they're bisexual because they're like hooking up with people of multiple genders and that like reinforces the idea that bisexuality is something you do not something that you are and um I figured like because I hadn't done it yet that I wasn't it
0: and I've uh read an interview where you said uh you know memoir is a radical medium so in, in what way is is memoir radical to you
1: Oh, I like that quote. I don't remember saying it, um, but I like it um, because I think that it's. Uh, I I looked down upon memoir for quite a while, even though I loved to write it and I loved to read it. Um, like in college, I was friends with a bunch of creative writing English majors, and I was like super ashamed that that was my genre um, because it wasn't. You know, it wasn't like high tier literary fiction and uh I don't know it, it just didn't feel like it was canon uh for me in college but of course those creative writing majors were like largely white guys and straight white guys and um they I I later realized that and I learned through like the work of Uh, Gia Tolentino and other people who write nonfiction essays and personal essays that it's really like, it's kind of the, a tool of oppressed people in a way. Um, The memoir as a genre, because sharing those personal experiences is so valuable, especially when those stories aren't the primary stories that are told in our world. Um, And so it's really been like even like EXO Jane days of I uh, it happened to me I blank. Um, there were so many essays that like dealt with sex work and dealt with race and dealt with e- these other issues that aren't often talked about through fiction. That I mean are are getting more prominent in fiction, but. For a very long time, were were kept out of the mainstream, and so even just like speaking from experience validates those truths. That's why it's radical.
0: In 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 memoir too, you alluded to this with uh, the recurring characters and how you you know certainly want people to read this cover to cover instead of jumping around. Um, what became the challenge for you in developing characters uh, throughout the course of this uh, of throughout the course of the linked essays?
1: Hmm. I mean, well, part of the hardest part about writing characters from people in real life is that you either sometimes you describe them too much, or almost like in with using specifics that like it, it's it's very easy to lean on physical uh, description, which I had done in a lot of early drafts. Um, but as I kind of learned, that readers don't really need too much of that. Like it's almost better to describe them in other ways and then like let your reader fill in kind of the physical picture almost with someone that they know um in that sense. So I definitely did a lot of that in the beginning. The other thing that's challenging is the fact that there are real people who might read it. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. um I like so far, uh I I got one call from the the woman who's written about in uh, the bad at sex essay, um, whose name has changed. And, um, she apologized for, uh, like the way that it was handled, even though she really did nothing wrong. And I was like, honestly, there are a lot of men who should probably apologize to me, but I don't think <laughs> I'll ever get those calls. Um, but, uh, I think that was, that was probably the biggest challenge was knowing that like people might, read this like I changed the names of everyone in uh high school and I know that like uh Sloan who is the which is the name of the the girl in the girl crush chapter um is has had explicitly told me that she wouldn't read the book like long before I don't so I have no idea she knows like what that's about but I know the other friends in the book Read have definitely read it and none of them have reached out to me so i'm like oh god what do you guys think um but yeah it's it's definitely weird memoir so weird but Mm -hmm. oh one one funny story is um in the chapter it's called knots um with the character elias that's a that's a changed name um but the the guy who that's actually about like, I guess his ears were burning because he like reached out to me randomly while I was writing and he must've known that he was in the book. And I was like, you're in it. Do you want to read it? Cause his essay is obviously like pretty favorable to him. Um, (laughs) And so then he read it and I let him choose his fake name. Uh, So that's, that's how that worked out. But um, yeah, it, it, it's been, it was dicey. Like, the whole time.
0: <laughs> nice. Let me just ask you one more question, Jen. I know you got to get out of here very soon. Um, You're you, you right, too, in early on, that as it turns out, I'm not straight. I'm not gay. The only thing I am is a threat because now I understand that bisexuality isn't just an identity. It's a lens through which to reimagine our world. So in what way has that uh, changed the lens and allowed you to uh, and us really to reimagine our world?
1: Yeah, I think – I mean, for me, realizing that what bisexuality means is – when when I realized that bisexuality basically means questioning patriarchy, it means questioning, uh, like, gender norms uh, and gender roles. It means questioning uh, systems of monogamy and just anything that's, like, uh, kind of taken for granted in – Uh, social systems like that's when I was like oh wow this identity is super empowering because in order to get comfortable in your bisexuality you have to it's it's not about saying bisexuals aren't confused uh, which is often said and I don't think we're we're confused I don't think we are confused about the fact that we're bi most of us realize that Um, but the idea of being confused refers to do we want to be with men or do we want to be with women? Uh, like we can't make up our minds. Um, but what Shiri Eisner's work helped me realize is that confusion is, is actually a superpower because it forces us to kind of question those existing options and be like, is this enough? And so I I think that that really helped me uh, tap into bisexuality as, as um, a powerful idea and that's what made it so easy to write a book about
0: well it's an illuminating book and a great book and entertaining informative it really checks all all the boxes so I just have to sure I, I just have to thank you for the work Jen and of course thanks for taking the time to talk shop and come on the podcast thank you so much
1: my pleasure thank you
0: all right Hey, CNFers, thank you for listening. Thanks to Jen for making the time. Thanks to West Virginia Wesleyan College's MFA in creative writing for the support. Always helps. You have a good time. It's part of the show. You know, this is uh, this part of the show. You know it's parting shot, but this show is partly made possible by the incredible cohort of members at patreon.com. Building up those coffers grants you access to transcripts in the audio magazine. Coaching as well. Helps pay for podcast hosting, which is not cheap. Keeps the backlog from getting absorbed and deleted. And your dollars go into the pockets of writers as well. Patreon.com slash pod, Shop around and help support the community. And I'm going to keep trying to come up with some creative ways to make it all the more worthwhile to be a member of that. It's hard to pony up even if two bucks a month when something is free and will always be free and so it's it's hard to make that sell i get it lots of podcasts i listen to if they're, they're if they add patreon things i'd be like oh do i really want to pay two bucks a month should i so i so i understand but if you do i'm trying to come up with ways to where you'd be like oh okay this is i'm paying two bucks a month and i'm getting 20 bucks in value a month so maybe more who knows anyway uh th- this week uh, i uh a 100-pound stray a female Rottweiler showed up at my neighbor's house right, right across the street Some, from somewhere. Okay. She had a pink collar and a leash. She got loose or something. Uh, he doesn't have dog infrastructure like we do. He's got two cats, uh, a roommate, you know, a wife and two little kids. So we had the infrastructure. So we took on the beast for a night. Uh, my neighbor and his eight-year-old daughter got real attached to her in a matter of hours. So when we took her for the night, his his daughter was like crying her eyes out, like we were stealing the the dog from her. So it was like kind of sense like, all right, well, well, fine, you you'll be able to see her. No, don't worry. And We're just taking her on. We're not stealing her. We're just taking her to give her uh, give her some shelter for the night. I should mention that she um, that when uh, yeah my neighbor and his daughter got home. Well, when she got home from school, we were all outside and uh, my neighbor handed this 100-pound dog uh, and the leash to his daughter who weighs about 50 pounds. So the dog weighs 100% more than her. Bus pulls away. Apparently, this dog likes to chase cars and takes off after the bus. Daughter drops the leash and the dog runs headstrong, headlong toward the back tires of this bus My heart drops into my stomach, and I'm just like, oh, shit. Uh, The bus slammed on the brakes, and disaster was averted. The big girl then dropped a number two on a nearby lawn. At this point, I took stewardship of the beast. Uh, She promptly peed twice in the house, once on a rug, once in the hallway without a rug. She was so itchy from stress and no doubt had a, a skin condition that her owner, wherever this person was... Didn't address with the veterinary care she clearly needs. She had no chip. She no tags. You know, thankfully, um, my neighbor he has a pretty robust local social media following. So he put it all over social media and called the dog pound and everything. A dog pound, uh, the the shelter, and a couple of the shelters. Anyway, so we you know we had her. We took her in. You know, we set up a vet appointment to get her looked at because. She definitely needs some allergy meds. The poor thing was miserable. Um, we were thinking, all right, well, this is just step step one of possibly having to adopt this monster, even though she was gaining confidence by the hour and was like, in a good way. But she was also starting to beat the living shit out of Hank. And uh, soon enough, thankfully, the owner reached out to my neighbor on Wednesday night, and within uh, 30 minutes or so, she was taken away my neighbor and his daughter were pretty broken up about it uh, they kind of thought the dog was going to be theirs I think or if my wife and I had to adopt her that they would have visitation rights or something daughter broke down crying father was really bummed and in the end my wife and I were actually relieved we've we we'd been wanting to get Hank a sibling but not this dog it wouldn't have worked out we had a we had a nightmare the night before trying to sleep and this is stress stressful for the dog The dog was so stressed out panting snarthing at her skin and her butthole it was it was awful uh turns out her name ended up being lola uh didn't respond to it but apparently that was her name uh she was really sweet but too much dog she probably needs to be in a single dog home uh, anyway, so that happened this week. We're, we're Like I said, we're eager to get Hank a sibling at some point because I think it'll be good for him. But but if Lolo was that sibling, I think Hank would have been miserable. This uh, this was the, one of the biggest dogs I've ever been around. Sweet. But she was built like, you know, and Sue, the defensive lineman for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. If that means anything to you, it just means this girl thick. All right, well anyway, time to go CNFers. Not, not a whole lot of insight shared there It was just a, a something that happened in the last few nights. Anyway, stay wild CNFers and if you can do, interview, see. Ya.